Welcome back to the Hormesis Podcast. Uh, this is Sean, and I've got everybody here together. So tonight, our main topic is going to be Nick and I discussing big data. Uh, we're going to have a bit of a radonk tilt to it, but we're trying to keep everybody involved. Uh, before we get too deep into that, uh, we were reviewing some of the, the Reddit comments. We really appreciate you guys going and taking some, some time out of your day to give us feedback. We, we're trying to read everything trying to work on getting some notifications so when new people are posting different threads we can know to go check it out we uh one thing that caught our eye was uh what are we hoping to get out of doing this podcast and i know for me i just sort of wanted to start recording something um <laughs> i wanted to share some thoughts but uh, i was really curious uh everybody else so andrea i'm most curious about why you're doing this podcast with us. So I work in a group. We have five physicists in my team. And I really enjoy being in a group of physicists because there's a lot of conversation and, and opinions and things that we can get out. And I just like talking to people from different places and with different ideas and figuring out what they have to say. And I think that something like this podcast, my hope was that it would be beneficial maybe for people that are solo physicists or who don't have the opportunity to just have a discussion about these topics. Because I think sometimes when you talk about it, some ideas that you had kind of come to the front of your brain and you think about things you might not have thought about otherwise. What about you, Allison? What are your reasons for wanting to do this podcast? So I'm at UW, which is one of the largest medical physics graduate programs. However, I sit six floors above the rest of the department, which means that I very rarely talk about medical physics to people outside of my lab group, which is you know my own fault. But having this opportunity to talk about medical physics with other people is really great, not only to spread my own propaganda of non-clinical physics and research and the like, but also to actually hear about radiation therapy and clinical physics, which I do not hear about in my day-to-day life. Nick, why are you here? It's a good question. At least part of it is because I like to talk. So one of the reasons that I wanted to do a podcast is to talk with some of my old friends that I don't get to talk to a lot. Um, that's a big thing. Uh, and new friends. Oh. And, and also... One of the things I found is I don't spend as much time reading papers as I'd like to. And one of the things I thought, if I'm doing a podcast, there's going to be a lot more research on things that I kind of know, but don't know the details of that I'm going to have to go and read papers on. And I'm going to have to learn more about them. And to be able to actually say anything and not talking about something that I have no idea about, I have to actually understand it. And so it will force me to not only read the papers that I've been meaning to read, but actually understand them. And so it's entirely selfish from my end in that perspective. I want to talk to people I want to talk to and, and I want to um, force myself to read more. But there's also the thing that I think there's a great opportunity to share the experiences that we've all had with people who don't get to sit down with a, a, a folk fellow physicist every day and talk about these things. You know, we're all in groups, as you've heard, that are multiple people. And there are a lot of physicists that see another physicist at meetings. And that's about it. And I think it'd be nice to foster a community with those people as well. I can't believe you actually think we're your friends. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did up until about five seconds ago. 
for me, I, I really think that there's a lack of sort of a, a casual conversation in medical physics. Yeah, I know that the, the AAPM has the, the BBS boards on the, the website, and there's the MedFiz Reddit. Um, Can I have but there's not... a quick yep. um, rant about the BBS boards? You can have a quick rant. If you are a student or trainee, you cannot have access to the voter member BBS board, which means that you miss a lot. Like, I don't even bother, and that kind of pisses me off. Well, yeah, I guess that's, I mean, I don't even go on them unless I've like accidentally noticed something. Like there's no good notification for it. I think it's it, it is a tool that is underutilized and I think just from your hashtag mini rant, it, you know, it's not inclusive to everyone. It's not in an easily accessible format and it's it's something that I think, you know, these types of discussions that we're trying to have which are admittedly going from really broad topics like medical physics education to IMRTQA like we're trying to just span the breadth of this field and have a, com- a casual conversation that people can listen to and and form opinions about and think about, and I just I, I've really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that about my my training as a physicist. It was I felt like I was doing that all day every day, and now that I'm in the clinic all day and doing you know the same work over and over and just trying to kind of keep my head above water, I feel like I lost that. And uh, yeah, so. I'm not going to call you friends, even though you probably are. But uh, having this time to just sit and talk and and express different thoughts than what may be the you know the exact quote from a, a TG report or the perfect wording from an MPPG like that's that's kind of what I was looking for with this. I think that's well said. So so yeah, that's what I think we're all looking to get out of. Uh, doing this i this podcast here is not it's not something that we're trying to do for economic gain it's not necessarily something where we feel like we need to serve the community of medical physics necessarily although we, we really hope that you guys find it interesting yeah i think that this is overall something that we're we're still learning and expanding into so tell us what you want to hear us talk about tell us what you think that you want to get out of listening to the podcast or how you want to contribute to it yeah so yeah come on over and Come over to uh, reddit.com slash r slash hormesis podcast. We're, we're trying to be as good as we can on keeping up with things. So we'll be on there a little bit more over the next few weeks. Um, I know I have a much needed vacation coming up, so I will be on there just shit posting. Um, I'm determined to come up with whatever a medical physics shit post is supposed to be. Anyways, thank you all. And uh, up next, Nick and I discuss big data and why you can headbutt your way into the future. So Nick, do uh, do we want to dive into this this big data topic? What is big data? Big data. Well, you want the basicest and the basicest, basicest. the most basic explanation. <laughs> the most basic explanation would be exactly what it sounds like. It's a lot of data that's too much to sort through by hand or even by standard processing techniques where you're trying to tease information out of the data. The fundamental idea is that you want to collect every possible bit of data you think might be important or don't think might be important and put it all in one place so you can start to use that to find correlations or to train data sets for other AI techniques. Okay. 
Yeah, so I guess that's kind of that kind of matches up with what I thought it was before we started digging into this a little bit more, where I was just thinking of it as like an un ungodly amount of data. It, you know, we talk about n-dimensional data sets all the time, and a big data set is something where n is like a hundred thousand or a million. You know, something crazy that you never would be able to sort through by just like you have a spreadsheet it doesn't work. You collect that vector of data for a billion interactions or a billion data points, and you just have this massive cube of the data. In fact, it, you actually found a really good reference on this, talking about the amount of medical data being generated just at Kaiser Permanente, and they, they estimated it would be up to a yottabyte, which is like 10 to the 24 bytes of data, just an EMR data. It's mind-boggling how much data we generate in medicine. And that data is not necessarily all useful right now. And that's, you know, one of the things to talk about. With What do you mean not necessarily all useful? How much of it is actually useful? It seems like, it seems like it's like a fraction of a percent that's useful. Yeah. Yes, that seems to be the case. And that's where, you know, one of the things to discuss is, is how do you make it useful? Why isn't it useful already? There's a lot of good reasons for that. And what's I think is most interesting is that the data that isn't currently useful may soon be useful with improved techniques in other areas. Another question of, of just what is it would be, is it already here? Are we already using big data? I mean, we know that industry is using big data in terms of Facebook, Google. They're mining big data to find habits of individuals without, you know, having identification you're talking you're talking about like metadata right not just meta i mean metadata is part of big data metadata is data about data which goes into the database to make an even bigger data right so it's being used outside of medicine is it being used currently in you know the fields that we're working in i think so well so you know i mean yeah let's i mean a lot of the references for this episode that are going to be in the show notes, they come from uh, the double eight, the medical physics ep- uh, issue, the medical physics issue that was covering the NCI uh, meeting and workshop on big data in 2017. So you know, we haven't done the deepest of deep dives on the big data literature just because big data literature is so vast by its own nature. But, you know, what we do know is that at least in radiology and radiation oncology, we're well poised for collecting and developing large data sets. So one of the ways that I I see us trying to use these principles of big data and trying to take this and and turn it into something useful is uh, incident learning systems, such as Royals, the Astro version, or there's some others like CARS, uh, which was privately developed out of UW. It's not necessarily big data because we're not talking about, you know, billions and billions of data points and billions and billions of items that we're collecting. But it is definitely frameworked after this idea where you can collect in a systematized way uh, the same information about safety incidents from all these clinics, not only in our country, but in in the world. So uh, I think that those are a big step forward for us trying to utilize this concept in radiation oncology. Do you got something that you use every day, Nick? <laughs> no, <laughs> not not in the big data sense. I, yeah. Okay. Well, then that's fine. Yeah. So we, we just actually rolled out Royals at SUNY. 
Oh, so I am. We are part of Royals. We we um do report to that, and I think to that to the point you were making of it's not big data, but it is systematized like big data because there's the understanding that that you learn from how you have failed to put data together in a reasonable way in the past, and it makes it hard to learn from it. Mm-hmm. To put mm-hmm. the data in a system you can learn from by giving it things that are queryable. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's ever done a retrospective chart review and you like go back to just physician notes to try and figure out what their intent for treatment was, let's say, um, before that was documented in your, your OIS, it's nearly impossible. It's, it's so hard to find just these basic things mm-hmm. that are actually required for billing. You know, like uh, it's, it's the reason why when you look at the guidelines for medical resident education and radiation oncology, they're actually supposed to be instructed on things like informatics, which is how do you set up a data collection device so that you can get data that you can actually process? You know, it's not even a problem anymore of how do we manipulate these data sets? It's how do we actually acquire this data and how do we get it into a clean data set and how do we ensure that the data quality is good? That's kind of an interesting bit. Yeah. And that's what's what's interesting about that is it's probably the right approach because the rate at which we collect data grows exponentially. And so it may be unimportant to get the old data into a useful format because you're collecting an order of magnitude more data from the new data per unit time than the same thing the last uh, unit of time. You know, last year we're collecting 10 times more data this year than that year. And so it's more important that the new data you're collecting be usable than that you try and massage the old data into a usable format. Actually, so this comes into a point that I really liked in one of the the articles from that big data workshop, Matuzek, where she said, you know, don't even think about this as like a data mining or data, like an informatics type thing where you have to go back and review all the data that we've already collected, because that's going to be a very difficult task and it may not lead to the most prosperous results. But think of this more as planting the seeds now and doing data farming, develop systems that give you things that you can use, make it up front and make it so that people know how to use these tools so that we can start really developing ways for us to to aggregate data in a meaningful way. I mean, uh, some of the great examples that we've got on this, and, and I'd actually say that this is stuff that we do use every day, and we neglected to say this as how do we use big data? Things like DICOM. DICOM is an excellent example of how do you standardize things in a way so that everybody can look at it and everybody can get the same information or even like a PAC system just as a local in your hospital big data type because those types of things carry I mean it's got to be petabytes of data just in diagnostic imaging right yeah for large centers no doubt really I really like that analogy that when you're when you're starting to talk about this as a as an upcoming thing on the horizon or something that's even already here people who want to get involved in this take the time now to develop good data practices And I think you were talking about make the tools easy. I think you also have to make it hard to do it the wrong way, not Mm -hmm. just make it easy to do it the right way. But, you know, for example, it might be easy to do it the right way, but someone is used to just writing what they mean to say in a note and they'll say, all right, person was diagnosed with this and they put it in a note and they haven't used the fairly easy to add diagnosis code to the system. Yes. But- now that information is there, but it's useless to you from the big data perspective because you just can't, you know, if, if we could solve the problem of natural language processing, then 
wonderful. We've got it all locked down. We've got infinite data there. But yeah, that is a problem that's been 50 years off for the past 100 years. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing about natural language processing is that even if you solved it now, language is evolving so rapidly that it's there's no guarantee that whatever method you use to solve it now would guarantee that you'd solve it forever. So yeah. um, I, I really like that example that you use because that was one of the first things that I had to really emphasize when we started um, – when I came to, to Upstate, a lot of the diagnoses were being put in. Um, somebody was entering them. They had the right information in there and so on, but it wasn't being associated with what we were treating. So the plans and the courses and the prescriptions, they didn't have this directly tied to them. And so when we tried to go back and do like retrospective quality reviews to make sure that we were in compliance with national standards for prescribing uh, for certain treatments, it was nearly impossible. We had to do it manually. And I just, I, that was the one of the first things is, hey, when we're making a plan, this diagnosis code is already in here. Just it's two clicks, guys. It's two clicks, and let's put this in here. And it's super easy for yeah. you guys to do. And it's super easy for me to catch on my check, you know? Yeah. And it's in there because it's required for billing. Yeah. But so, so that is that is an example of we have this code in here now because they have to put it in. Not that it was easier to put it in, but they have to. And so it is always going to be there. But they don't have to link it to what they're treating. And so you don't get that link happening because, you know, least friction. There's so much other stuff to do that it's just you drop off what you don't have to do. Yeah, I know. Well, that's one reason we have so many checks, right? Right. But that's still, that's trying to catch a mistake that someone has already made when it should be make it so they can't make that mistake in the first place. Make it so they can't fail to pick a diagnosis when putting in a prescription, right? Because you're not going to prescribe without a diagnosis. And then you would definitely have it linked to that course of treatment. Yeah, but a clinical physicist isn't going to have the ability to make that design decision, right? Well, that depends. That depends on if we go back to our Medical Physics 3.0 episode, who's the owner of the software? Now, you're right. A clinical physicist isn't going to be able to tell the manufacturer of the oncology information system that they need to fix this. But maybe if the option is already there, the clinical physicist can be the owner of making sure that it's turned on. Yeah, I mean, so that's that was our solution is we have to make sure that it's turned on, that it's in there. This is this is one of the things about not just not just oncology information systems, but electronic medical records in general. So products like Epic or McKesson's option, I, I don't I've never even actually worked with McKesson, but they've developed some of these tools. They're in there, they're not required in a lot of cases. And the people who use this this type of software, they don't always have thorough training. They don't know how this information can be is stored in there and how it can be used to better effect. So like if you just put the diagnosis code and associate it with a course of treatment or in a set of orders, you can generate most of your documentation and it'll drop all of this information in there without you having to touch a button. Well, you have to touch a button. You have to select what template you want to generate. But it comes back to this design from major manufacturers and being cognizant of that. And again, DICOM is an excellent example of how a forward-thinking group of people said, we need to make sure that people standardize and systematize the way we collect this data because we're going to be collecting a whole shit ton of it. So 
I, I agree, and DICOM is a great example of that. But DICOM is also a bit of an example of where there are workarounds to the standardization that individuals creating DICOM-compliant products can make their own private creator tags that they don't have to explain what's in there or how it's used. And it isn't just a case of DICOM did it and it's good for life. It's a case of you constantly have to fight back against these vendor-specific tags that, no, if if the vendor thinks this is information that's useful, then we should create a standardized tag for it so that everyone can put it in under that tag. And it's not, well, when you've got this vendor's product, you have to look at this tag for this information. And this other vendor, you have to look at this one. And this third vendor, they don't put it in at all. So good luck. To go back to Matazax, don't think of it as mining. Think of it as farming. You got to go through and spray pesticides every now and then. We're not organic data farmers. <laughs> well, you know, organic data farmers are allowed to use some pesticides, just not the big name ones. So this actually goes to the biggest problem with big data, right? And that's, in my mind, the with any of these algorithms and, and data-specific things, GIGO, right? Garbage in, garbage out. You have to provide usable data if big data is going to be of any use to you. And that's, you have to make these systems so you have to enter the data in a very specific sort of format. And this definitely slows down the process for the person entering the data because, well, at least up front, it's a lot harder to translate initially what you're thinking to, which I just want to write down, patient has uh, breast cancer on the left side and it's poorly differentiated and so on. You just want to write that down. You don't want to have to go through this menu and find the poorly differentiated one or you don't have to plug it into a search engine to find which ICD-10 code that corresponds to. Oh, you guys do that too? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone does that because no one's yeah. going to sit there and memorize the ICD-10 codes unless they're a physician that only sees. The search function in the, the OIS systems are is super slow. Google is so much faster. Well, you know, the funny thing is it's using a proprietary Google-alike, right? I mean, it's not Google, but the reason it's slow is it is doing a web search from within the browser. Oh, no, really? Oh, it's not even like a regeps within its ICD-10 table. Correct. It's a paid-for service that, that it is plugging the query into. And so we have a problem with our some of our physicians cannot use it when they're connected through a VPN because the VPN blocks the data going to that site. So they have to wait until they come on campus to be able to plug in que queries to that ICD-10 server. So this, I think, actually, it goes right into the garbage in, garbage out. You got to make it easy. If you're if you've got people on the front line doing data entry, you gotta make it easy for them. And that goes all the way from front desk staff to the like head honcho of the hospital. If they're gonna do manual entry, they need to know what the options are, they need to know it's convenient for them. It has to take a minimal amount of time. And so uh, I think one of the big things that we gloss over in a little bit of this, we talk about developing good data collection tools, but we don't talk about uh, UI UX, which is like the big Silicon Valley buzz buzzwords now, right? People get paid lots of money. They get paid more than a medical physicist to be really good at UI UX. And it, it, you know, it is something that you need to do in a busy clinical environment. A therapist who's treating 40 patients a day, which I don't know where the hell we get that number from anymore, because getting to 35 patients a day makes our, our therapist ready to stab people. If you go up and ask them to do anything else, they will like shoot you on the spot. It's crazy. Because it's such a hectic schedule for them. Like They don't have the extra 10 seconds when you say, well, it's 10 seconds extra every patient. They just 
don't have it because they're rushing through when they really shouldn't even be rushing. So making this type of data entry easy, making it flow, being familiar with the types of entry that they're going to have to do and make it so it's not just like this cumbersome, clumsy, all-in-one type of okay for everything but good for nothing system, I think is is important and something that we totally gloss over when we t- when we teach things like informatics. You've hit on one of my biggest pet peeves with all of the modern user interfaces that I deal with, and that is they're removing keyboard shortcuts everywhere they can. Everything is now mouse-driven. You know, you're the person who got me into keyboard shortcuts. You have saved me. Because they're so much more efficient. Hours. Mm-hmm. It, you should not have to write auto hotkey scripts to be able to quickly change the status of a task. You should have a five keystroke sequence that does it, right? It shouldn't be that you have to grab your mouse after typing a note and move over and click approve and then move your mouse back down and then type your username and password in a field and press enter. It should be five keystrokes to get it done and then your password and enter, right? All of that friction of moving your hand from one thing to the other, it's fine if this is the first time you sat down at this software or the 20th time you sat down at this software, but these are tasks that you are doing in your career thousands or tens of thousands of times, and that having to break concentration on the screen, go find your mouse, move your mouse to the right spot, move your hand back to the keyboard tens of thousands of times just destroys your flow, and you can't get through those things quickly. You look at the people who have to enter a lot of data repeatedly, they'll be using keyboard shortcuts for everything. You you know, cashiers and the systems that they're using, they're not using a GUI. They're using a text-based interface that lets them put the data in as quickly as they possibly can with the minimal of feedback, only what you need to see, because you don't need pretty flashy graphics to show you that you've entered a one in that field and you can move on to the next thing. But that's not the interfaces we're given. I think that's a terrible example because I had a cashier ask me yesterday, what is this? It was a zucchini. Like, <laughs> It's not like she thought, is this a zucchini or a cucumber? She legitimately did not know what this vegetable was. This is a totally foreign concept to her. But I agree. I <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I also I also kind of disagree that I think a lot of people don't like I used to think of myself as quite tech savvy. And then I met you and then I met my other coworker, uh, Wei Dong. So, again, I don't think that I don't think that a lot of data entry specialists, good data entry people are very good at that. Exactly what you're talking about, knowing the fastest way to do it and knowing what reduces the effort they have to do. Think of it sort of like drumming. Like good drummers, they barely move their arms. They're not waving their hands around and losing drumsticks. They're they're hitting the drum with the precision that they need at the speed that they need and wasting minimal effort. Whereas a lot of people now, when they're doing this this data entry, this data work, they don't take the time to learn the tools that are going to make it easier for them. I just, I don't see a lot of people who do have secretarial jobs or basic data entry positions and know all these things. They don't know how to use keyboard shortcuts. They don't know how to do, like, how do you use a a number pad without looking at it? Well, I want to stop you right there because I do know how to do those things and I cannot do them anymore in new versions of the software that I'm given because it is being removed. Yeah. And I, I, like I said, I didn't know anything about this until I met you. You are a super user. You are like the person who made me realize I was an idiot. Like that's, <laughs> and unfortunately, what's happening is that a lot of these products are being designed for a lower common denominator than where you're operating. 
And it's it is. It's unfortunate. It's sad and and kind of criminal. But at the same time, maybe they're also kind of genius because they know that you're going to be replaced by a robot someday. Both of us will. Maybe. Soon as NLP gets sorted out. But I think the trick is NLP isn't going to be solved until you got strong AI. I think that is fundamentally the answer to natural language processing. This is completely different discussion, but we're not going to get those types of things until we've got proper strong AI just based on what language is. So making it easier for the humans that are still going to be putting it in there to actually do that is still critical. And it's every bit of friction that makes it harder. And, oh, I'm not going to bother with this piece of software. I'm not going to bother clicking that drop down because it's too frustrating and it doesn't have what I want and I don't want to spend the time to ask for it to have what I want and they won't listen to me anyway makes it so that we miss out on that data and we miss out on the potential benefits of having that huge data set. While while I agree with that feeling of like that doesn't have what I want and they won't listen to me anyways, I think we're seeing this this trend towards things that can be more easily transitioned to app-based softwares. So I think, you know, um, actually I was talking about podcasts. I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast because it was on YouTube and I wanted to watch the Bernie Sanders one. And that got me over to the Elon Musk one. And the Elon Musk one, he was talking about the bandwidth or the, the, the like the data entry rate. And he, he said, we've taken a huge step back and the amount of bandwidth we have when we're interfacing with computers because we've transitioned away from keyboards and are just using our thumb. And it's it's 100% true, but it's because I feel like so many people are unaware of the tools that were there to allow you to interface with a computer conveniently. It's like, you, you know, Star Trek, uh, The Journey Home with Scotty capturing the whales and trying to show somebody how to make transparent aluminum. And he goes, oh, a keyboard, how quaint. And then he just flies through the thing. I'm not going to do my Scotty impression. and But like he's one of the few people who could do that. And I feel like when you talk about a lot of the people who are doing this basic work, they're not people who spend the amount of time to go through an RTFM and understand uh, or know the people who really understand how to use this piece of software. Those people are so far and few between now that it's it's really rare for you to interact with somebody who's just super good at what they're doing. And is able to teach you in a way that you're able to take it and learn from it and and incorporate it into your own experience and usage. So we got a little bit off topic from the big data bit. But I, when we talk about data entry and we talk about user experience and we talk about that, I think that we need to keep that in the back of our minds that you and I are probably not the average user for something like clinical care paths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a doctor is going to doctor. That's what they're going to do. They're not going to worry about what the fancy call is in the software to make their lives easier. They're just going to worry about what they have to do for their patient. Right. So you've got to, I think that still goes back to the UI thing. You got to make it obvious what the easy thing is and make it easier than it, or at least as easy as it would be to just talk into a microphone and hope that someone's there to deal with it. Yeah. And you got to train them. Yeah. Yeah. So... We've talked about some of the difficulties in data uh, standardization, that that you've got to get these things together in a usable format. And one of the the ways that that's being done is with what are called ontologies, which are the way that you try and describe the data that you're going to collect and how you'll categorize it, Mm -hmm. which is what we've been talking about. But you need to formally define those things. And, And there's been some good work done. What the ontologies 
should be for radiation oncology, for example. But the limitation of that is that you need to, if you want to use this big data for retrospective analysis of things that you've done to see what you should be changing to make it better, what had better outcomes, what was correlated with better outcomes, you need to know what it's important for you to track already, to put into your ontology to be able to record it. And so I think one of the difficulties and one of the limitations is we've been talking about, you know, get getting the data in there, but knowing what is useful data to be getting in there in the first place. Because you cannot simply catch everything. You can't take a full 3D scan of the patient every moment that they're talking to the physician during the consult, record every word they say in the tremor of their voice when they say one word over another. All of these things could be important, but we don't have any way to record that, right? Mm -hmm. So let alone the things that are more obviously related to the outcome. We try and look at the data and see what we think is important and create an ontology or add that to our ontology so that we can create a checkbox to indicate something about that. But that is still fundamentally the limitation of big data has to be classified data. It has to be set into specific categories. So you've got to decide up front what are the important categories to be looking at. So so who is dealing with that now? I, I think that we are starting to address this. And so I, I'm just wondering, do you know anybody who is actively trying to define these things? Any steps that are being taken in radiation oncology specifically to, to move this forward? Well, there's RUO or ROO, the um, Radiation Oncology Specific Ontologies. Uh, I think that was uh, uh, most recently in a paper by Traverso et al. So the, the other limitation that we've got, once we've figured out what's important to classify and we've put it together, is that everyone's putting their own data in their own bins. And they may not even be deciding on that same standardization, but let's say that everyone agrees that, yeah, we'll use the ROO ontology or the RO ontology and we'll classify the data that way. But my center is going to keep it in my center because I can't share that information with you because that is in violation of X number of federal laws and Y number of uh, uh, ethics regulations or ethics, ethical codes. So yeah, it's not just like the data being standardized is the problem. It's being able to collect the data into big data. Right, right. And so so actually, in this big data workshop that we've referenced earlier, there was an article talking about the ethics of big data. And, and so one of the things that's in the works and that people are trying to move towards, especially in larger healthcare systems, are things called learning health systems or LHSs. So a learning health system is uh, an organization dedicated to the treatment of human diseases but also the accumulation of data in a way to progress that same mission. And and they they talk a lot about in this paper, it's from uh, Specter Baghdadi Jagsi, uh, published in August 2018 in Medical Physics. They talk about, you know, okay, so ethics kind of gets in the way, our current concept of ethics. I don't know. Have you had to do IRB and city training, Nick? Yes. Yeah, we have to do IRB approval and all that. Yeah. So it's just about every six months. Oh, wow. That's really frequent. I think it's three years for us, although I just had to do the like biospecimens city training because mm -hmm. we're doing like a patient reported outcome bit, which is another way that we're trying to do big data. Anyways, I digress. You know, this, you know, they talked about the idea of, you know, if you have de-identified data, like even outcome data can be useful for research and de-identified and not really pose any moral questions. If you're just using standard of care, I mean, I, I think one of the, the quandaries that you have here is uh, an ex well, maybe not a quandary. This is poor phrasing. 
one of the ways that you can justify doing big data collection without having to go through the traditional uh, IRB process, internal review board for Allison, is to call it a quality project. If you call something a quality project and prospectively collect data saying we're tracking the quality of our new form of treatment, that is okay so long as no research work occurs on that data set. The minute you start looking at research work, you have to send it to the IRB and say it's been de-identified, do all this stuff. It can actually be, to that point, it can be retrospective data. That's, you know, HIPAA and all of that. It, as long oh, yeah. as it's for the purposes but of quality. But typically prospective data, prospective, it's, HIPAA's not really a research thing, though. Well, you're not allowed to access a medical record, any electronic medical record, unless it's for approved research purposes by an IRB or direct patient care or quality improvement. Quality improvement. So it is yeah. a HIPAA thing. If you're... Right. If you are doing this for research and you don't have an IRB approval, then you run afoul of the laws because you need consent from the patient. Yeah, but you to could be involved in their treatment and you wouldn't run afoul of HIPAA. You would run afoul of but it, bioethics laws, not not privacy concern. It, if you're collecting the data and it's not for their treatment, then it's a violation of HIPAA. If you are involved in their treatment, but you're going into their chart not for their hit treatment purpose then you're violating HIPAA unless it's for quality assurance purposes. Right. But if but if you're in their record because you are in direct care, as Andrew's pointing out, like if you're in there, that's 100% fine. You're not violating HIPAA right. if you're in there. You're, you're violating HIPAA if you go back and access it solely for the purpose of, of research. I don't know if splitting this hair is important. What yeah. it, What is important is that when you are doing this, you still... After you've collected this quality data and you say, okay, this quality data is good, we think that we've improved our outcomes, or we think that they're at least as good as the old standard of care, hey, we'd like to move forward and publish this. You can't. You've got to go through an IRB. You've got to go and say, like, hey, we're going to do all this stuff with this data. We're going to de-identify it. We're going to gender discriminate it, and we're going to or not discriminate, de gender desegregate it. Yeah, it, it's just you still have to go through that process after the fact. And what this this paper is kind of arguing for is for redefining our our, our concept of ethics and the the right to consent and the right of privacy and saying that if you're just totally de-identified, if you are completely de-identified, and, and there's a very specific case that is going to be kind of the thorn in the side to this, then that data has a usefulness as part of a big data context. And so going through cumbersome IRB approval processes prohibits a lot of patients participating in this. And also it prohibits a lot of investigators to initiate this type of research, or at least that is the claim because of the regulatory and the IRB burden, right? You know, you've got to submit this big proposal. You've got to show how there's no harm to the patients, how everything's fully de-identified. You can apply for an exempt status or an expedited review uh, in certain key situations. And it sounds like from what this article, or it's kind of an article, it's more of a, it's like three pages. It's it's kind of an article, kind of a, an opinion piece. What they intend to use this data for would fall under the category of an exempt IRB review, meaning that it needs to be reviewed once. Uh, it doesn't have to be subject to the full board, you know, so long as nothing goes wrong, you're good. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't fully buy the argument, but I do think it's interesting that they're looking at this and saying the ethics of collecting this data set on human subjects may require us to rethink how we have been traditionally trained to evaluate ethical concerns. Yeah. And I wanted to 
add something to that point of um, sufficiently de-identified. Because if we're talking big data, you're trying to collect as many metrics about this individual case as possible. The amount of sort of definitionally, we're collecting every possible detail, which might be different than every other case that was treated in a similar way. In order for it to be useful for big data, you can't remove all of the things that would make it uniquely identifying. You can remove the obvious identifiers of name and date of birth even, but that's incredibly useful. Like, it is an important thing. So, you know, okay, you put them in a large enough group that it should be hard to find this person. But when you have so much data on this and data about the data, metadata on this, we've seen you can fairly easily get from seemingly innocuous metadata and data down to an identification of a person based on stuff that doesn't seem to be important and so wouldn't be reasonably removed from in the de-identification process. And so even this idea of de-identification is not really sensible when the whole point of big data is collect every possible bit of information because you don't know what's important. And so you can't say what should be thrown out so that you can't re-identify this patient in the data set, but at the same time, keep the data that might be useful for the, the big data analysis or what you're using the big data for. So I really want to keep talking about this. I really do. But I, I think that we should probably wrap this up a little bit and, and we could talk a little bit about the, the thorny case that I mentioned. Specifically, it's genetic data. Genetic data is impossible to appropriately de-identify. But to do that, I think that <clears throat> let's wrap this up real quick. Let's. Do you have some conclusions on what big data is going to be for medical research or medical physics in particular? Big data is a critical next step in being able to analyze this, you know, multivariate problem of healthcare and of trying to treat disease sites or trying to solve the problems that we see in clinical medical physics or in, you know, radiation oncology or diagnostic medical physics in radiology, any of these things, having more data is critical and being able to understand how we can put this data together is critical. It is, no joking, the future. It's where we're going to get our next steps. We've sort of cut off all the low-hanging fruit and have eaten it pretty well. Now it's going to be harder to get. We need the farming techniques, as Matuzek et al. points out. Um, and I think that's what we need out of big data, is to understand that it is the only way our fields move forward from here. Yeah, I mean, I, I really agree with that. I, I also think that, you know, there are a couple things that go along with it. it. Big data is not on its own a solution. Big data is is a great input to things that can think beyond the capabilities of a human mind. We need to really emphasize this bit in training. We need to understand that to be a forward-thinking society and to be a forward-thinking workforce, you know, we are intelligent professionals who can understand these abstract concepts in a way that I don't think a lot of people get. You know, I mean, I mentioned earlier that you're the one who made me realize I'm kind of an idiot. There are people who make you realize you're an idiot. And the the person who I walk into work with every now and then thinks that they're kind of an idiot when they talk to me. You know, there's a whole hierarchy here. I don't know who sits on top of this, but we're not at the bottom of this hierarchy. And, and that means that we should be trained by the people who do stand on top of it to 
implement tools and techniques to improve the way that we gather, collect, and use data. And, and this really needs to be a stronger emphasis, I think, in a lot of basic clinical medical physics training programs. Because the way that one of the, well, one of the biggest differences between a successful large center and your podunk little town community clinic is going to be the way they incorporate and uh, utilize data to drive their decision makings. And right now, a lot of that is through prospective randomized clinical trials, but we may start reaching a point where that level of evidence is not necessary if we're able to gather and uh, accumulate the amount of data that we generate across the globe when we're talking about radiation oncology and medical physics. So having a well-trained physics workforce that truly understands these concepts and is able to put them into effect, I think, is a big part of us realizing the potential that's here. So that's my closing thought. With that, would you like to uh, welcome in our co-hosts and see if they have any thoughts and uh, things they want to scream at us about? Are they co-hosts or are they just hecklers? Hecklers. I mean, uh, God, you two are like what? What are the two Muppets that sit in the in the <laughs> whatever the mezzanine and Herfblurf? It's Waldorf and Astoria. No, not Astoria, but it's it's named after famous hotels. Uh, Waldorf and Statler. Allison, you said that you do pet research on a radiomics episode. What do you think about big data and pet? I think there's some unique challenges with big data, in particular in medical imaging uh, research. In particular, you know, things are acquired in so many different ways, and it can be hard to treat things as apples and oranges. However, that's also kind of the point of big data, is to get so much that you can see what works across the board as opposed to what works if you have this one scanner acquired on this one clinical protocol. So I think that's really the strength of big data, or big data approaches to data analysis. I've had too much science. <laughs> so both of you mentioned this a tiny bit, but I'm curious what kinds of big data or retrospective sorts of protocols you have in place in your institutions to take advantage of previously acquired data. You know, I struggle to think of ways in which I'm currently using the data that we have to improve. We do a lot of retrospective reviews um, where I'm involved in quite a few. Uh, we're evaluating the outcomes of our HDR sarcoma brachytherapy cohorts at the moment. Um, we're also prospectively evaluating the uh, outcomes of our HDR cervix brachytherapy patients because we transitioned from an LDR brachytherapy program to an HDR program. So we, we these are separate. These are separate from clinical trials, but we do also participate in clinical trials. So actually, one of the recent clinical trials that we were on called uh, NRG GY006. I call it yeah. It's I call it a chemo trial. It was evaluating a new chemo agent uh, used in combination chemo radiation therapy for cervix, advanced stage cervix cancer. They actually had a very robust, not only credentialing process, but also we had to pass a knowledge-based planning review of our intended treatment. And if we failed the knowledge-based planning review, we had to replan. And we ran into some some issues with this because we did a lot of these patients on our Tomo machine because they have such an extended treatment volume. And when you transferred over a lot of these metrics, or you transferred over the dose metrics 
they evaluated it on a different system that came up with slightly different answers. And so some things that we said were passing, they said were failing the KBP evaluation by like half a percent and they didn't have a tolerance on it. And so I had to send a lot of emails to people like, hey, even though your KBP says that we're failing, like there is a variation in the DVH analysis you're doing here and you need to have some of some measure to account for the fact that there's a like a half a percent difference and how you're calculating this, or you're seriously going to make us replan to achieve a half a percent difference. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's relevant or not, but that's that's been our clinical experience with these types of not only retrospective reviews, but also sort of prospective data collection tools that are using maybe not big data techniques, but they are definitely using the standardization and the uh, ontology. I think though you've hit, you've hit a thing subtly where you're using big data, but don't realize, or maybe do realize, and you're just giving me a softball here, but knowledge-based planning is probably the current most obvious example of big data in radiation oncology at the moment. In radiation therapy, medical physics side of radiation oncology, I guess. I'll be very specific. This, you know, collect huge data sets of what are the plans you've already done, and it can be incredibly useful for, hey, this plan I just made, is it as good as most of the plans that are kind of like this have been. And it might not be able to tell you what you should get for this particular plan, but it can give you ranges of most of the plans that were generated for this type of treatment site and this type of whatever other data factors you throw into it looked like this. It's a big data solution for evaluating the plan. But again, it's only going to be useful for this something that you've already got data on, right? I have a question about your, your retrospective studies. How do you identify patients for those? Oh, oh, you are you are putting down a trap. You're trying to trap me into saying something I'm not going to say on a podcast. So the way that we identify patients, um, we've utilized REDCap for the last few years. So effectively, since I learned that we had REDCap and what REDCap was, oh, REDCap is like the greatest thing ever. Um, even though it's effectively like a glorified spreadsheet. So REDCap is an online database tool, but it's not really a database. You can't like link tables in the same way that a true database would be. It was developed by Vanderbilt. It's open source. It's, uh, it stands for Research Data Capture. I, I'm a big fan because what happens with, let's say you're doing a retrospective review and you're just everybody else and you open and make a spreadsheet. And when you make your spreadsheet, you decide, I'm going to be really proactive and I'm going to say that all these these columns here, they're only going to have ones and zeros. And then all these other equations are going to be based off this these ones and zeros. And you go through it and you come across a difficult and challenging patient. And you say, this one, this one here is going to have some text next to the one to define why it's a one. And now your equation doesn't work. And your spreadsheet turns into like a billion columns long and nobody can understand what the hell you're doing. REDCap is an alternative. It's an online database tool that allows you to use plain text and correlate that with machine language to have convenient online forms to do surveys. It's been used for patient reported outcomes. It's been used for longitudinal assessments, meaning um, repeated assessments of the same types of measures. It Effectively, it, the other thing it does is that say you made the best spreadsheet in the world. You're the only one who knows what's going on with it. You hide it away when you leave the place. Nobody has access to your data. And REDCap prevents that from happening by you being able to share your projects with people at your institution. And it stores it in a way that they're able to understand and interpret what's going on. Sorry, I'm a big fan of REDCap. Uh, anyways, <clears throat> so in REDCap, we will uh, collect identifiers. So specifically an internal identifier that could be either an MRN or it could be a, a cipher-based MRN. So, you know, you have a separate spreadsheet with the cipher key 
that links MRN to a record number. If we put actual MRNs into a REDCap database, uh, nobody's allowed to export identifiable information, and that is marked as an identifier. So that's how we are tracking our patients for retrospective reviews. That was a long answer for a short question. So every time a new patient is scanned or treated at your center, they're entered into your REDCap database. So actually, we use REDCap to do our dosimetry workflows. Yeah, so our, we have a dosimetry whiteboard that uh, anytime that we scan a patient for radiation oncology, they get put into a a working dosimetry whiteboard that collects a lot of the same information. It collects things like what treatment site they are, if they're SBRT, if they have any special advanced respiratory motion management, how long it took for the dosimetrist to do any fusions that were requested, uh, as long as as well as what those fusions were. Time. It, it's like a workflow tool. And it's also used as a quality assessment tool for our clinic. So the reason that I ask that is because at UW, at least in the radiology department, we have the ability to request retrospective data up to, I think it's 50 patients at a time. But that requires the research coordinator to go through PACs and manually identify patients for your study, manually extract the data from radiology reports or from you know, patient history, etc., which is obviously really time-consuming and inconvenient. At least that's the way that I understand it happens. I could be wrong. Maybe you have something smarter going on, but... I don't want to dominate this discussion with that question, unfortunately, because I feel like I could talk... We could talk a lot about that. How about we talk about that on another podcast as research methods? I was actually really interested in Andrea's IMRT QA database that she'd mentioned on our TG218 episode. Because I think that kind of falls into a big data style collection event. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, Andrea. It's really nothing special. But I um, changed our, our Excel sheet that we were using to generate our reports and made everything basically drop down menus and tables. Um, even things that I thought might not be useful later, but you don't really ever know what's going to be useful. And I've kind of found, I've started doing this with all of my Excel forms Everything that I can make a drop-down menu, I do, including, you know, like the name of the physicist who did the report, um, So because people sign their name differently on non-official documents a lot. And so if you have a drop-down, it's always the same. So I started trying to do things like that. Things are always in the same format that way. Um, I started identifying plans by, like, the type of plan, and I have a list of specific types of plan so they're always labeled the same way. And then I created another Excel spreadsheet that pulls all the data from a whole list of different Excel spreadsheets and puts it into a, a table and in Excel. I mean, Excel is really powerful. You can do things like sort by machine type, sort by energy across all your different machines. And I'm hoping to get some trending information that I can maybe see this machine in our system is performing worse than the other ones on IMRTQA. Maybe we need to look at it things that might not be apparent unless you were collecting that data. So that's kind of what I'm doing. But I just I just started working on it maybe about six months ago. I feel like you're inspiring me to do that same thing. I want to put it into a REDCap database. You could I could give you the files I made. I'm not I'll share anything. I mean I gave you my shielding stuff, I think. Yeah, you did, which I found interesting as well. Yeah, I I mean I think that it's I think that's something that we've talked we talked a little bit about a TG two eighteen, but I think it's a way for us as just it's an example of how clinical physicists can start collecting this data through tools that we we use. Well, I think something like that too. I mean, the data has always been there, but if you don't have something set up to automatically get it and put it in a really searchable format, you're not really 
going to look at it because it's just too time consuming. The way I have it set up, it takes me 30 seconds to pull all the data and put it into a format that I can quickly look and see. So, but whereas before you'd have to, you know, manually pull all the information or write it down somewhere. This is just as long as everybody uses the correct form, it takes me 30 seconds to look back at whatever data I want to. So I think that's important. So I have a question. They not only have to generate like their own quality assurance documentation for the IMRTQA, but they also have to open this form up and enter in whatever it is that they're entering in. No, well, it's it's ba- it's based into the the report that we use. So you know, this is this only works when we use the matrix or um, if we use ion chamber and film, which we do at some of our sites still. Okay. So we have an Excel sheet that generates the report. So you put in your calibration data, your result that you got, oh. and all of that. So it just it it uses the same form that we were already using. And I just made everything a drop down. And so basically what I do is I search for all XLSX for type files. And you can use Power Oh my God, I can't say this word. Power Query in Excel. <laughs> I always have trouble saying that word. I don't know why. Okay. Power Query. And it can just pull all of those files in and pull whatever data fields you need. And it, as long as it's in a table format, it re- can read it. So I kind of have another tab in the Excel sheet that is a table of all that data. And then it just, I'll sh- I, I'd have to show you. It's kind of, it's really cool though. I'm really proud of it. But you could use it for other things too, like your monthly QA. If it's an Excel, sh- it fits an Excel sheet, you could do the same thing with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I turned my monthly QA into a access database. Okay. That I actually shared with Nick. Nick helped me make some improvements to it. So in the same way, I am able to do some trending analysis, even though it's not as easy to use as, say, an Excel sheet. I think it's kind of interesting that way. Both of those methods, I think, would benefit from transitioning them into proper relational databases and such that it's sort of the the fundamental data store for this big data, right? That you got to have it in a relational database. So here's the problem with doing something. I wanted it. So we have five physicists. And when I was implementing it, I wanted it to be something that didn't really change the their workflow because everyone's busy. Nobody has time to do anything extra and asking them to do things in a different way or a more time consuming way. No, People just wouldn't do it. That would be the problem. So I wanted to make it yeah. So it wasn't any more work for anybody. So that was kind of how that became not, you know, a database and just an Excel sheet. Yeah. No, it's it's a an admirable way of solving that sort of UI problem that you were talking about that, you know, you've got to make it still usable for the people. And if there's simply not time to learn a new interface, then you make it usable in, in how you collect the data out of them. Well, not only a new interface, but you'd have to have software on every computer to do that i don't know well i think it's more going back to that it buy-in in in, uh, medical physics that the better solution is to have dedicated database servers for this sort of data collection for medical physics uh, supported by it backed up by it with web interfaces for the data collection that you can more easily generate and that it sounds like uh, in looking at what RedCap is, it's that sort of thing. It's a way to to have an easy interface to collecting this data. But it's limited to, pretty exclusively limited to not-for-profit and public institutions. Well, it could be used by any institution that just uses it for research. 
So you like Kaiser Permanente could use it. The Children's Oncology Group uses it. But one thing that it, this does, does remind me of is for our 40 CT scans, we have to manually evaluate a patient's breathing period and come up with um, not only the amount of time per couch position that we're going to stay and uh, acquire CINE images, but we also have to evaluate and determine the number of images and the gap between when we're saying one projection belongs to one image versus the other. And so when we were starting to do this, we wanted to talk about implementing an audio coaching technique. And then we we did it on one patient, but I developed a red cap uh, thing that would start tracking this. And we've just been inputting all of this data for a couple of years. And so we've got like, a, I think it's 440 parameters, scan parameters put into this thing. And one way that we didn't expect this data to be used for, we just went through the process of evaluating whether or not we should be purchasing a new CT scan and what the technical parameters for that should be. And we realized that we spend a huge amount of time scanning with 4D CT. And we were able to calculate not only how much time it has been taking us, but also the perspective times for other scanners and calculate time savings for the physicians to be there based off this data set that we've been collecting. And it's all because it's standardized. Like you, you, we were able to make it so that it collect, it detects a few like fat finger of value and it is able to, to just, it, it was surprising to me how useful this crazy idea showed up in our clinical decision-making two years after we started doing it. On a whim. <laughs> it was so easy to implement because the interface was two clicks and you type in the two numbers. And and that's pretty much it. Anyways, RedCap's going to save the world. Big data is going to save the world if it doesn't end it first. Or if we don't end it first. You know, I, I, I obviously this is a big topic. I think there's a lot to be said on this. Nick and I obviously have had a lot to say. We'd love to hear you guys come over to uh, come over to the Reddit reddit.com slash r slash hormesis podcast and, and tell us what you think about big data. Tell us how you've seen it used, if you're using it in your clinics, how clinical trials have started to to change from your perspective. Because from my perspective, they definitely have. So with that, I, I think that there's a lot of room for improvement. There's a lot of hope for the future. And I, I hope that we're all able to kind of get in on the ground floor of this and start really making some positive changes in the way that we're practicing clinical medicine by using real data-driven evidence uh, in the way that big data can help us do, do so. So with that, thank you very much for listening. This has been Sean, Nick, Andrea, and Allison. Good night. And good luck. <laughs> mm-hmm.